Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. My guest today is the Chief Product Officer at one of the largest managed detection and response firms in the world, Arctic Wolf. We covered everything from a general simplification of enterprise security that he's seeing within their largest enterprise customers, as well as a deep conversation about his approach to leadership and management, particularly for teams that are distributed across the country and across the world. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Dan Schiappa from Arctic Wolf. Well, the party is off to a good start. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How's it going? Great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, as a way to uh, to kick us off, why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about your background uh, and sort of how you found your way into the world of cybersecurity? Oh, sure. It's uh, it was somewhat by accident, but uh, I, I would call it fortuitous and destiny. So, so I'm Dan Schaff. I'm the chief product officer at Arctic Wolf. I have been in cyber uh, for over 20 years. Uh, started my career as a developer. Uh, worked for some startups, worked for a company like uh, Oracle uh, for many years, doing really kind of cutting edge stuff uh, around uh, interactive television and some things that were really out there at the time. And uh, went and did a startup, uh, did really well with that one, sold that. Uh, I was one of the first employees there, so I didn't found it. But then my next startup I did, uh, find, uh, was the founder of that, got that rolling, uh, sold that off as well. And Microsoft was recruiting me. Uh, to come and run their digital media division. I was doing digital media at the time back in the early, early days of video streaming. And I just wasn't interested in that anymore. And they said, hey, we have this role over in cybersecurity. Would you be interested in leading that team? And I said, that sounds interesting. And that was my introduction to cybersecurity. And so I came in initially ran uh, all the authentication services and cloud services uh, around identity for Microsoft. It was called uh, uh, Passport at the time, Microsoft Passport. Uh, and then I went over and spent many, many years running the Windows security team inside Windows. And uh, so I had a lot of fun doing that. Jumped over to lead all the product uh, development and engineering efforts at RSA. Uh, then I was a CPO at Sophos for eight years. And now I've been at Article for about a year and a half. I'm always curious to, uh, you know, to ask people and we'll, of course, get more into sort of some of the specific things that are going on in the industry today and, and your role within Arctic Wolf. But as you kind of reflect on, uh, you know, your your time in the industry thus far, what's sort of been consistent or sort of still is true about the cybersecurity industry? And what have you seen maybe be the biggest changes over you know, the last 20 years or so? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing that's been consistent is just really the innovation and the creativity of the adversary. So I think, you know, even going back to the, the early days, uh, back with the Melissa Sasser blaster viruses, things of that nature that were really more designed to be destructive and, and things of that nature than they were to be criminal or, you know, espionage oriented. But But nonetheless, a lot of the creativity and ingenuity that they used to purport those types of attacks were really out there and they were they were very far ahead of what the defense capabilities were today um, and that that creativity continues as you start to to look at some of the various supply chain attacks ransomware attacks nation state attacks you you read that you know about the capabilities and sophistication of those attacks and and you know sometimes you, you can't help but tip your hat and go oh, that was pretty ingenious to think about that 
Um, so that's, I think, the consistent part. I think the part that's changed as the defense side has also become very innovative and very capable. And so it's become a real cat and mouse game uh, where I think uh, today, if I look at where the defense capabilities are as an industry compared to where they were back when I started in, say, 2000, um, it's just night and day. And in 2010, it, it's night and day. And, and I think the other thing that was different is in the early days, I, I had to convince people security was important. All right. They, they call it the security tax. And, you know, you had to go in and, and convince someone to fund something and, and pay for, you know, security audits and things of that nature. You obviously don't need to do that today. I think everyone fully understands that uh, they don't have to, you know, in the, in the past, I used to say security happened in three ways. It was e- either regulated upon you, um, something terrible happened to you or something terrible happened to somebody else. And then you didn't want it to happen to you. And we're, we're, you know, still in that world. Uh, I think people now are very concerned about, you know, being uh, attacked, even if they haven't been attacked yet, because they do see what the pot- potential damage is to them. Yeah. We'll dig into a few things there a little bit later on in the, in the conversation, but as sort of like continued background and just like getting to know you a little bit better, I'm curious to hear um, maybe some sort of <clears throat> highlights or maybe critical moments or inflection points as you sort of think back along your career. Um, so I guess to frame this into a question, you know, as you reflect on, you know, some of the amazing companies that you've been a part of, like Microsoft and RSA, Sophos, et cetera, what have been maybe some turning points or inflection points that have sort of shaped how you think about building companies? Yeah, I think the the most important thing for me is to just continue to have uh, a culture of learning. Um, you know, for me, every every one of those jobs I went to, I learned something different and I became a, a better executive uh, each step of the way. And I think if you have that attitude of continuous learning, I think you're going to have a lot of different positive turning points in your career. And sometimes you learn by making mistakes and that's totally fine as well. Um, but nonetheless, you have to be in that that world of learning. And so Microsoft, you know, I came from from running a startup to being part of a big, you know, big, big company. Um, and the way it operated was big and uh, it was populated with brilliant people everywhere you turned. And so that was really exciting and interesting. And it, and it forced you to kind of up your game quite a bit because now, you know, as you're trying to establish yourself in your career, you really had to do a lot of homework. And for me, you know, cyber was new at that time. And so I did an awful lot of reading. I spent a lot of time with people who had expertise in certain areas and really made a, an effort to, to, you know, gain knowledge in that area. And I'd say within a couple of years, you know, I was able to stand toe to toe in that technology with, with many people who've been in it for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, going to RSA, I learned a lot about the, the kind of the sales engine because Microsoft didn't really interface much with the sales team when you're on the engineering side. And so at RSA, I had a chance to really see the, the EMC, EMC owned RSA at the time, the EMC sales engine at work. And you've always heard these legends about, you know, the wonderful EMC sales engine. It, it was it was a machine and it was really great to learn from that. Um, and then at Sophos, I learned a lot of things. I learned about the channel and how important the channel is and how important it is to manage your channel and, and leverage your channel. And I also had the great uh, luxury to work alongside several you know, great people there that taught me many things from Chris Hagerman, the CEO, to Joe Levy, who the, was the CTO at the time. And Mike, uh, Mike, who, who read sales, uh, led sales for us. And it was just, it was an awesome experience. And then here, Arctic Wolf, 
um, you know, I have an opportunity to be, I'm one of the elder statesmen here. So it's a great opportunity for me to be one of those teachers, but I've still learned from, from many people uh, around the table every day uh, of what we're doing. It just makes it fun. Um, and of yeah. course we're in an industry that you have to keep learning because it just changes so rapidly and so fast. If you don't have that culture of continuous learning, you're going to be kind of an old dinosaur in the industry before you know it. Yeah, something something you said uh, a few minutes ago absolutely resonates, and I'm a big believer in as well that you can uh, you know, you have to be open minded and, and be open to continue to learning, but also that you can learn a lot from your failures and mistakes, and oftentimes learn a lot more than you can from your successes. So. What are some examples of, of maybe like mistakes you've made over your career that you're glad happened because it taught you a valuable lesson? Yeah, I could fill up your uh, your whole podcast. With <laughs> we only have an hour, so. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, I think, you know, before I get into the specifics, thank you, right, though. I think I definitely have grown and learned more from my mistakes than from, you know, some of the successes. I think early in my career, I knew a lot of success and not many failures. And you start to, you know, build a phony uh, persona within your own mind of who you are uh, because you've just seen nothing but success. And so when I started my own company, um, I started it right kind of during the dot-com boom. And I was just past my A-round when the dot-com bust happened. And uh, I wasn't technically a dot-com at that time, but uh, you know, it just dried up all the investment money. And so, you know, I learned a bunch of things. One, uh, my company uh, started off, it was called the iFrame. And so it was a video streaming technology that at the time, you know, did a whole bunch of transcoding and stuff, just made it very easy for people to use it. Um, but it was basically the first YouTube. And I was uh, smart enough, that was a pun, to shift and pivot away from doing that to then providing streaming technologies to others. And so, you know, who knows, uh, it could have been, you know, Google could have owned iframe for all I know, but so that was probably big, stupid mistake. Number one. And then probably the bigger mistake was as I began to execute the business, I didn't know a lot about sales. Uh, I was an engineer and, and prior to that, I, I was in, in strategy and corp dev. And so, uh, I didn't really build out a great sales infrastructure for that company. And when the, the dot com bust happened and kind of investment dollars were hard to come by, we had to basically live off of what we sold and we didn't have the right sales infrastructure in place. And so we had to kind of scramble to, to do that. Luckily, we we're able to do that. We we're able to kind of weather the storm. Um, it was some rough, rough times, you know, laying people off. I, I often tell the story. I had to lay off my mother-in-law and I love my mother-in-law. So it was a, it was a tough time. And in you, my leadership skills, I think over that period of time grew because I think I, I gained a very important leadership quality, which is humility uh, I think I, I recognized I probably wasn't as talented as I may have thought I was going into that. And and that also kind of drove the need to seek out mentors and people who, you know, have more knowledge and experience than you and, and use those as learning experiences. And so I think that those were some big, uh, big mistakes that I made uh, in the early stages of my career. And of course, uh, I can, again, fill up the rest of your hour with other ones I've made. You mentioned... Uh you know, a, a few sort of categories of experience you've had. And that was something I wanted to ask you about. And I noticed in just kind of getting ready for our conversation is um, you've worn a lot of different hats throughout your career, right? You mentioned strategy and corp dev to sort of CEO, executive leadership, to now obviously the head of product for a large security organization. 
And I'm curious to hear how you, uh, you know, think about like recommending, uh, you know, career strategy options to young professionals. You know, for example, you hear some people who say, stay very focused and stay kind of linear in one domain. You hear others who say, you know, take advantage of uh, maybe your your young age and experiment, try a few new things until you find something you really like and you're good at, and then maybe specialize there. So I'm obviously it varies by circumstance, but what's kind of your uh, your maybe advice to like young people that you would be mentoring? Yeah, there, there's there's a line that was thrown at me a few times that I don't necessarily subscribe to, but they call it the jack of all trades, master of none. And mm-hmm. um, and there there's there is some truth to that. Uh, but I made a point in my career to make sure I tried to balance out understanding technical uh, acumen and then having business acumen as well, because I, I always felt having bringing business acumen into a more technical role just made me make better decisions as a technologist. And understanding technology very well in a business role made me make better business decisions. So I made a point in my career to, to really kind of try and balance those things out. And I found passion in both sides. So, you know, my first job uh, not doing, you know, writing code and stuff where I was doing, you know, business development and strategy for a startup. And I just loved it. I got to deal with financial analysts and I was still I was pretty much running the sales team because we didn't really have a sales team there either. And, you know, so I got a chance to interface a lot more with customers and, and do deals and negotiate. And it was just, it was really exciting and a new skill. And I, I embraced it. I, uh, I didn't have the time to go get an MBA, but I, I bought the entire Harvard, you know, portable MBA series of books and read them front to front to back. And that just, that helped me a lot. Those are written by the actual professors who taught the classes. And I just, I just felt more educated about that. And then, yeah. I, you know, as I went into a CEO role, uh, you know, outside of the mistakes I've made uh, in that role, I went into, you know, more things around raising money, working with the VCs, sitting on boards. And and that was a really cool experience. And then I was back to the technical role at Microsoft. And I didn't realize how much I missed that because, um, you know, I'm a engineer at heart. So I just really embraced that. But again, I brought the business acumen into that. So for example, one of the big projects uh, I had at Microsoft was something called Project Xeno. And I was doing this directly with with Bill Gates at the time. And it was to to look at the world 10 years in the future. So it would have been predicting 2015. And what did that world, what was that world going to look like? And then how do we make sure we have the security mechanisms in place to protect that world? So it was kind of a 10-year future Mm -hmm. plan. And, you know, I had all the brightest minds in security at Sovos. I had futurists working on the project. And and having the business acumen to understand what the business you know, environment around those technical trends would be helped us build better security mechanisms for that. And so I thought that the balance was really good because most of the other people on the project were very, very technical. And so uh, it was great to bring that balance in. And then, you know, kind of in our CPO type role, you have to bring that balance because you have to understand what the market's looking for. You have to make sure you're having proper ROI and in the investments you're making. Um, but you also have to be able to dig in deeply and understand the technology that you're building and be able to, you know, ensure you're building the right things, you're building up the right quality. Um, you have to balance that left brain and right brain. You have to be very creative in cyber, but you also have to be very operational. I like mm-hmm. to talk about operating with speed, quality, and innovation. And so driving those things, uh, it kind of makes you be a little bit left and right brained. And so I think that balance of skills that I focused on 
really helped me to do that. Where if I just came from one role or the other, I don't think I could have been as successful. When you are, are sort of mentoring, you know, early career professionals today, do you recommend a, a similar sort of balanced approach or does it just vary on a case by case basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it varies based on the individual. So there, there's absolutely mm-hmm. nothing wrong with, you know, deciding you want to become the master of a specific skill or a master of a specific industry. So, for example, once I got into the cyber industry, that that was it for me. I I, I was a cyber person through and through. I just loved the industry. And I think, again, because it was it forced me to be a constant learner. But when I was at Microsoft, I had other roles. They, they like to move you around into other executive roles. And so, for example, I ran Corp Dev and Strategy for one of the P&Ls there. And while that was fun, it's not where my passion lied. So I wanted to get back into cyber, uh, which is when I joined RSA. And so that, that's that's my path that I've chosen now. I think the different roles I've had helped me become successful there. But look, I know some really, really, really talented you know, architects and engineers. That's what they love to do. And that's all they want to do. And that's totally fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So it's it's kind of an individual choice. Yeah. And how did that balance and sort of all of those career you know, steps lead to you being a chief product officer? Yeah, I, again, I think being in the role of a chief product officer, you have to have both the external view of what you're delivering, what the market requires. Uh, you're constantly meeting with market analysts, financial analysts, customers, partners. Um, so you have a very outbound focus, but you also are accountable for delivering the product. And so you have to have that operational view of, of diving into the roadmap, diving into requirements, looking at the architecture, making sure you have the right people on your team to execute against your vision and your plans. And that's the other big, big piece is just making sure that, you know, you're surrounding yourself with the best talent you can. And the best talent doesn't always mean the, the most individually skilled people. It means building the right team of talent. And uh, I think that's a mistake a lot of people get is they, they may try and get uh, 10 of the smartest people they can. And this was a big Microsoft failure I used to, to think is, and sometimes the, you know, uh, an all-star team doesn't play as well as a team that, you know, can work together to better, uh, better together and, and know, you know, when to pass the ball to each other and, you know, things of that nature. And, and so that's, that's a really important aspect. And uh, that's something I learned along the way too, is how do, how do you recognize the skills and the personalities that are going to operate well together? And uh, so yeah. I think, you know, being a chief product officer, having that business acumen plus the, the technical chops really makes you a successful CPO. Cause I think if you're overloaded on one or the other, you're going to, sh- you may struggle a little bit. Sure. I love to, uh, to dig into team building a little bit more. So, you know, when you think about the structure um, or just the tenants for, you know, organizing a group of people to work together, what's kind of your, your mindset or how do you actually go about doing it in a way where it's not just an all-star team with, you know, a bunch of ball hogs, for example. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what's what I love so much about Arctic Wolf is we always talk about us being the wolf pack, like we're part of a pack of wolves, and and that mentality really emanates throughout the entire you know fiber of of the company, and that's who I am. So I you know I grew up playing team sports, and so I am used to understanding uh, how team dynamics work, what roles people have within certain you know, teams and, and, you know, not, you know, Derek Jeter wouldn't be great, you know, at every position on the field. And so you need to fill your, your team out with catchers and pitchers and first basemen and, and the like. And, um, and so I, I learned that growing up in team sports, but uh, when you get into the professional uh, world, it's about matching the right skills, but it's also matching the right personalities 
understanding mm-hmm. people who will work with each other, people who aren't afraid to ask for help when they need it. That's the, that's the one thing that I always encourage people so much to do is, you know, everyone's going to need help at some point. And as a, as a pack now, you know, we're here to help you, but we can only help you if we know you need help. And if we figure out you need help, it's probably <laughs> might be too late by then. So, um, so that's part of that team dynamic is, is understanding that your team's there for you when you do need help. Um, when you make mistakes and, and again, we're all going to make mistakes. I tell my team, you know, I'll make three mistakes today, but we learn from them. We hold ourselves accountable to them and we help each other when those things happen. And so, you know, to me, it's really finding the right personality. So often when I'm interviewing somebody for a senior role, uh, you know, typically the, the, the basic, you know, skills, their technical chops and all, all that stuff, that's all, you know, interviewed before the time uh, I get to them. So I really focus on their personality and their cultural fit. And that, that's a really important aspect because not only do I, I want to have the right talent on the team and the right, you know, culture on the team, it's so much better when you have just good people on your team too, people that you enjoy coming to work with every day because they're good people. Um, and so I think, I do think that plays a big role in how I build my teams. I'd love to dig into that last point about sort of evaluating for personality or, or cultural fit. Um, I've talked about it with a couple other podcast guests, but for me personally, it's something I, I've struggled with before and, and have made that mistake where I kind of get fooled a little bit. You know, somebody comes across as, you know, everyone says they're a good team player, but then when you actually get into the, uh, you know, perhaps a stressful situation, maybe they, they aren't as, as good as they claim to be. So how do you go about sort of evaluating personality and, and cultural fit? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you try and do as much as you can through an interview process and ask the right questions and, and put them on the spot in certain ways to see how they react to that. You know, checking references is obviously very big. And, you know, I'm a big fan of not just checking the references they give you, but, you know, uh, LinkedIn's a great tool. Go and find out some other people they worked with. Maybe, you know, some of the people they worked with, you can get some, some unsolicited, you know, feedback. Uh, that's good. In some cases, you, you don't figure things out until they're on board. And uh, and in many cases, uh, maybe they turn out better than you thought. In some cases, they don't. Some people are really good interviewers, um, but they don't uh, they don't typically uh, perform as well once they get inside. And, you know, I have kind of this this plan here. You know, if somebody is not executing the way that they need to or they're not you know, performing the way they need to, is letting them know as soon as possible and letting them know what they can do to fix it. I'm a big fan of giving people that feedback and giving them the opportunity to address the feedback. Some people take the feedback very, very seriously and they work very hard to address it. Uh, others, again, like a good interviewer, they act like they care, but they don't seem to change. And um, the most important thing in my roles, my job is is to build out the team and and it's to make sure I have the right people on that team. And if, if somebody is not working out, then, you know, we'll, we'll want to fix that and, and get somebody in who can. And so it's, it's tough to do that. I mean, nobody likes to that part of the job, but you owe it to everyone on your team to make sure that, you know, if, if you're going to come into the pack, you're going to contribute to the pack like every other wolf in the pack. And, and that's a, a really important aspect of how I've always run my teams. And, and again, that last piece that I think is, is an important piece is, you know, people who, uh, I, I just say they're good people, right? They're, they're enjoyable to be around They're They pick people up when they're down. They're always lending a helping hand. They're self-reflective. They're humble. Um, that doesn't necessarily always translate to, they have the right talent to execute the role, but it, it, it's, if you can find the combination of somebody who has the right talent and 
all those other kind of intrinsic skills and personality traits, uh, you, you tend to have really good teams. And uh, I, uh, there's been several times when I've left a team, either I've been you know promoted into a different role or I left a company, or whatever. That tears are in my eyes um, when I leave, and, and tears are in people's eyes because you you become so close to them because you've built that right kind of connection with everybody there, and uh, and that's kind of uh, you know to me a, a sign of success. And in some cases, you know, you've grown your leadership to to not need you anymore, and that's also a great sign of success. But nonetheless, you know, you have invested so much of your time and you spent so much of your time with these these people that they are like family to you. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of uh, sort of leadership principles that, uh, you know, are important to you, like kind of teamwork and transparency, those sorts of things. Um, but sort of more generally, how, how would you describe your approach to leadership and, and how has it evolved throughout your career? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, you know, some of the cliches, you know, lead by example, things of that nature. Um, I, I think of myself as a servant leader as well. So I, you know, I always tell my team, my job is to help you make your job easier. So, you know, you need to let me help you by letting me know when you need that type of help. Um, I'm, you know, also try and be balanced where I can drive the vision of where we want to go. I think everybody wants a clear vision and a concise vision. They don't want the strategy to change all the time. Uh, so they, they know that they can sign up for for something and, and that's going to continue to be that way. But then you also have to help operationalize that. So you got to be willing to kind of roll the sleeves up and dig in. And, and also kind of build that culture, you know, through the whole organization. So it's kind of a trust, but verified culture where we're, we're, we're always inspecting work. Um, we, we, it doesn't mean we don't trust the team. We explicitly trust the team, but, you know, we have to, you know, just check and see how things are going. I have different experiences than other managers do. And so I know yeah. what rocks to look under and what walls to tap on to see how things are going. And then as you kind of build that culture out, then you don't have to do it as much anymore. And so, it's a wonderful thing, but, but, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's all of those things really combined that, that, that kind of helps you build out that, that, you know, kind of structure that you want. Yeah. I'd love to uh, pivot a bit to talk a little bit more about just kind of the operating environment today, um, as of June 6th, as we're recording. Um, but I'm curious, maybe just kind of, you know, big open-ended question here. What would you say is the sort of largest challenge or you know, largest challenges that either you're experiencing directly as a chief product officer or, you know, sort of your fellow product leaders are experiencing right now? Yeah, I think the biggest change is the, and the difference of how we work today. So, you know, pre-COVID and post-COVID world's very different. Um, and there's pros and cons to it. There, there's definitely, you know, as I, I talked to you from my home office uh, yeah. So I, I I don't live near one of the Arctic Wolf offices. So that's one of the positives is I now have, you know, I can recruit anybody anywhere. And, you know, we're used to now this remote work work structure. And, and there's, you know, a lot of people are very productive in that way, particularly on the engineering side where some people like, you know, loud rock and roll music while they're coding and some people like dead silence and no lights on. And, and now when you have your home office, you can work however you want. Um, that's one of the pro those are some of the pros. The downsides are you, you lose some of that team camaraderie. You lose that water cooler talk. You lose the, Hey, let's go to lunch together. You, you kind of lose some of that. And, and a company whose culture is so much built around being part of the pack, 
you don't necessarily often feel as part of the pack if you're isolated working from home and you, you rarely see your colleagues. And so I think those are the challenges. Uh, I think we've all learned how to do that productively. So I, I personally don't have a problem with people who want to work that way. Again, I get the opportunity to recruit great talent anywhere. But when you do get into an office and you see the energy and the atmosphere of, of people there, man, you, you do recognize how much you miss that and yeah. how much that contributed to not only the work experience, but people's growth opportunities. Cause you're just, you are exposed to more people. And if you're in that world of continuous learning, you know, when you're just around more people, you have more opportunities to learn from people. And how have you guys gone about recreating that? Like, do you do, you know, team offsites, um, you know, digital events? What's kind of been your approach there? Yeah, I think we're evolving uh, a little bit how we do that. I think in, in some roles, people have just come back to the office. Uh, yeah. So certainly our folks working in our security operations centers, they're, they're back full time five days a week. Uh, I think most of our sales offices are populated with salespeople. I think in some of the satellite offices, yeah, we do try and do special events to get people in. I think we're going to make an effort to get people in, you know, a little more frequently um, than they were in the past. Not mandatory, but really encourage them to come in, you know, two, three days a week uh, if they live near an office. But, you know, since COVID, we've grown, you know, by over 100 percent. And a lot of those people are remote and, you know, they're not going to have an opportunity to do that. So we do try and do team events that bring people into, you know, their nearest office uh, and get them, you know, feeling part of the pack. I, you know, one of the stories I told people here was I joined on January of uh, 2022 and was working remote. And, and, you know, I was excited to be part of Arctic Wolf. And, but when I went to the, the kind of the company kickoff in the headquarters and there was, you know, a few hundred people there and, you know, it, man, I really felt like I was part of the pack. That's when it, when it hit me like, oh man, I'm now, I'm part of this pack. And it just kind of changed my whole perception of, of the company uh, and how we worked because I, I now had that inclusion event uh, of being there. And so I do, you know, recommend people, you know, come into the office. If Certainly if you live near the office, come in at least two times a week and just get that experience. And so we'll, we'll try and do things where we'll pick days where, We'll get the whole teams in because it you know it doesn't necessarily help if you're straggling you know food people in and, and and it's not your whole team so we're we're kind of still yeah. evolving and learning how to make it work best because at the same time as i mentioned some people just really are more productive working from home and we certainly don't want to impact that either yeah a slight sort of pivot um i'd love to maybe spend some time talking about uh sort of you know the customer from a market <laughs> perspective um, I asked you at the beginning of the conversation about how you've seen sort of the industry evolve and, and you mentioned, you know, sort of a evolution of the threat actors and the, the cat and mouse game. Um, I'm curious to hear, you know, when you talk with CISOs and customers today, sort of what are you hearing or maybe how are things different today than they were in the past? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is the evolution of the defense uh, market, you know, it, it starts. It started back with, you know, endpoint security and a firewall. And you know, if you had endpoint security and a firewall, you were good. And then it expanded into, you know, uh, you know, intrusion detection systems. And you know, it started just expanding by tools. And then, you know, all of a sudden, before you know it, you got thirty-five tools in your environment, and you're still 
you know, at risk. And so, you know, people have, you know, thrown everything in the kitchen sink at the problem and it hasn't been solved yet. So what we're seeing is people want to bring sanity to this, you know, kind of explosion of different security tooling and have some unified way to get value out of those tools. And that's where I think you're seeing a big, you know, growth in things like XDR and MDR and um, in our, what we call the security operations cloud, it's ability to, to take all that information and centralize it into a platform. And you're really getting all the benefit out of the platform and all those different tools that you were using. They're certainly providing benefit as well, but they're also just providing telemetry into that platform where you're getting kind of the, the center of gravity of, of all your security benefit. And so I think that's, that's what I, I talk to most CISOs about today is they're just trying to make the best of the investment they've made and not have to keep investing in the new tool of the day uh, as different things come out, particularly as we've gone through, as cyber's matured, things like the cloud have become you know, commonplace as well and SaaS applications. And so the whole IT world was changing and that forces the cyber world to change. And what happens in typical cases is I've seen companies who make that move to the cloud or make that move to SaaS applications and they don't think of the security until afterwards. So mm-hmm. Like, hey, I got, you know, all my workloads are now in the cloud. Uh, you know, how should I secure that? And it's like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, you should have a plan going into that. Uh, but, you know, they they get sold on the, the cost savings and the flexibility of being in the cloud and dumping, you know, uh, on-premise apps for SaaS apps. And they they often don't think through all the security ramifications till it's too late. And then there's a whole new category of products they have to buy now. I have to go buy all these CNAP products to protect my cloud. But I have very similar technology protecting my on-premise. Why can't they just be the same thing, you know? And so you yeah. run into those those issues. And so, uh, and I think there's, you know, our customer base varies greatly. So we have that very sophisticated enterprise who, you know, our, our concierge, what we call our concierge delivery team can partner with their security team very well to get them exactly what they need from our platform. Uh, all the way to the, the companies like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just need you guys to do it for me. And we yeah. have everything in between in that spectrum. And that's, that's the world. Uh, you know, that's the, that's a, a really cool thing for us because that's a, a kind of a microcosm of what reality is, is you get some companies who just, they can barely afford a couple IT people, but they still have to be secure and they have to have, you know, that, that sophisticated security capability because they are, you know, open for attack, whether it's ransomware, whether they're part of a supply chain, um, but, you know, they still have the same risk as a big company, but they don't have the budget or sophistication. Then we go all the way up to, the people who, you know, understand what, what's at risk and they have ample budget, but they still need to simplify their operations. Where are you guys seeing more growth? Is it in sort of the large enterprise market or, or more the SMB? Yeah, I think we're seeing the large, the most of our growth right now is in the, the large enterprise. So uh, I think uh, our heritage, we started off in kind of SMB and mid-market. Um, I think we got pulled up into large enterprise because our value proposition was so good. I think now we've got a very compelling offering for the large enterprise. And so that's that's growing quite a bit because it doesn't matter how sophisticated you are, you still want less complication in your environment. Um, you, you can be very sophisticated. It doesn't mean you have to be very complex. Complexity is the enemy of security. So the more simplistic we can make things for people and the more unified we can through the Article of Platform, the, the better off for them. So we're definitely getting a lot of interest from you know large enterprise. I'm curious to hear how, how you think about uh, sort of competition from a product standpoint. So, you know, in a world where, uh, you know, a customer buys into sort of a platform view where there's, 
you know, lots of different solutions that contribute to the platform. And it's better for me as a customer because I pay one price. It's simplified. It's easier to manage than nine separate tools. Um, from a product standpoint, how do you sort of stay nimble enough to, uh, you know, the evolving needs of the customer and not have any of that chipped away by startups over time? Yeah, I think uh, I think cyber is interesting because the competitors I see that I care the most about are are not you know other vendors. It's APT twenty nine, it's Lockbit, it's you know it's mm-hmm. the hacking groups. That, that's my competitor because that's who I have to be. Um, yeah, I may may have more features than another vendor. I may have less features than another vendor. But at the end of the day, my job is to defeat those hacking groups. So that that's my number one competitor. Then when I do turn it to the industry, I think it's about the value proposition. What can I bring to the table that has the best value proposition to the customer? So I think in Arctic Wolf's case, you know, we're not just bringing, uh, you know, an MDR solution or, uh, you know, we're, we're not an MSSP. We're a security operations cloud. So we can bring the full security operation, a bunch of different ways for you to consume that into one platform. We can leverage whatever tooling you already have, and we can also deploy our own tooling if you need it. And so we have a very flexible model that reduces the friction for any customer to work with us. And then we ingest about 500 billion observations a day. Uh, so to put that in perspective, every second, uh, we're doing about 130 security observations to every one Facebook post, right? So just, you know, let's put that in perspective. So, you know, we're operating a massive scale. Our job is to turn all that information into security outcomes. And so we leverage a bunch of AI models. We leverage our security operators. And so from uh, from a customer's perspective, for the cost of two-thirds of an IT generalist, you get a full security operations center and, and you know, armed with the, the best people in the industry. So value proposition is quite easy. And, and I think that's where we're focused most on is, is comprehensiveness. Uh, we call it kind of unifying the market through the security operations cloud platform. But that value proposition back to customers, we know they don't have unlimited security budget to go buy a, bil- a billion tools and and then have spend time jumping from console to console to console to try and manage them. Um, so we try and you know provide that value, and then we provide a lot of security value through our own you know detection models and and, and things on top of it that some of those vendors miss. And so it's a really strong value proposition to the customers, and that's kind of where we're focused. And so I don't necessarily go well you know, vendor A is doing this and vendor B is doing that. We need to do that. I just look at what our customers are are, are really needing and trying to provide that to them um, with the most important thing being the security outcome. That's the yeah, most yeah. important thing. I'd love to get into the details of kind of like how you personally stay close with customers. Like, do you join, you know, quarterly business reviews for the largest customers? Do you make a point? All right, I'm going to talk to five customers a week? Like what's kind of like your personal strategy for staying in touch with customers and getting a pulse of the market? Yeah, I think I think it's really important to stay in touch with customers. So I do it a bunch of different ways. I'll, I'll meet with, you know, key customers frequently. Uh, some of them I have, you know, regular cadence with because uh, I use them as trusted advisors for us. But, you know, I also want them to know we're there for them. Uh, I have ad hoc meetings with different customers, uh, usually driven by the field and, and what their needs are. Uh, we also have a customer advisory board where we present to quarterly. Um, my my goal there isn't to present something to them that's a done deal, but I want to present something to them early enough that they can have input and can kind of mold things that we're doing around like strategy and, and future efforts and things of that nature. And so, you know, what I want to do is, is solve their problems of today, but I also want to try and solve their problems of tomorrow. 
And I think that's a, that's a good CPO is, you know, you need to be able to do the, the battlefield, you know, healthcare, but you also want to be able to do the preventative healthcare. So you have to be able to look around corners and so talking to customers is a great way to do that, but also just, you know, doing some other kind of strategic planning efforts really kind of helps do that. And what I often end up doing with some of those customers is I tell them what we think is going to be happening in the next three to five years so they can prepare as well, because they are so very kind of focused on their their mission and challenge of the day. Without, you know, of course, revealing any sort of secret sauce or anything, but like when you do appear around the corner three to five years, what do you see as sort of being the, um, you know, most you know, like apparent trends that product leaders like yourself need to be aware of and, and ensure are part of their solutions. Yeah, I think obviously, you know, the the buzzword du jour is AI. And and I think, you know, we've been using AI in our industry for a long time. It, it's it's not new to us. Um, most of the AI we've been using is is kind of behind the scenes stuff. It's, you know, you know, detection models and malware detection models and, you know, automation and a whole bunch of stuff that customers don't necessarily interface with. I think when you see things like generative AI that you can now interface with it, you start to recognize how powerful the tool can be while adversaries are using AI as well. And so, you know, I used to say it's been, it's kind of like an arms war with them, but it's now it's not like a nuclear arms war with them because the the capabilities, and the impact can be much higher. And that's rather they're able to build social campaigns that are harder to detect or rather they're, they're able to use uh, generative AI to look for vulnerabilities in, in, in code. And, you know, there's a whole variety of ways they can use that to their advantage. And so we have to kind of keep up with that in, in our advantage. And so, you know, I just make sure co- companies understand that the, the stakes are much higher, the, the, the sophistication of what they need is much higher and the ability to try and solve a problem with a whole bunch of individual products focused on an individual area is it's just, it's low hanging fruit for, for AI attacks to, to expose. And so having a platform that can pull all that information together and look at it holistically, I think is where the market's going Uh, And we're not the only vendors doing this, obviously. So I think some of the other leading vendors are taking this approach as well. And that that's where I see the best defense capabilities coming in the next three years. The sad thing is for many, many years now, you know, people keep saying, oh, when, when's it ransomware not going to be the most important thing? Well, it's still very effective um, and it's still a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, so while that's, you know, chucking along, that's not going to change. So, you know, for the next, you know, foreseeable future, we're still going to have things like ransomware. We're going to have still, you know, for the dawn of time, we've had nation state uh, attacks and things of that nature. They're just using more and more sophisticated mechanisms uh, to execute those missions. And so we have to you know, build better defense, but AI is going to play a huge role in both the offensive and defensive sides coming up in the next few years. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'd love to pivot into the, uh, the rapid fire round. It's how we wrap up uh, every interview here. And uh, basic premise is I ask a few quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Sure. Sounds good. Cool. All right. What's your favorite book? Um, Oh, I'm going to say The Leadership Pill by Ken Blanchard. <clears throat> okay. What do you like about it? It's a, it's a, if, if you've ever read Ken Blanchard, they're, you know, they're kind of business leadership books. They're very small. You can actually knock it out in a couple hours, but they're always told in the form of a story. And for some reason, that one just really resonated with me. It's about our leaders born or our leaders made. And, uh, and there's an experiment with a leadership pill and, you know, can you give someone a leadership pill and they become a leader? And it was just, I I think it was a great tool of 
teaching what good leadership is and what it means to be a leader and what are good leadership quality traits in the form of a story that was, you know, consumable. If you could change one thing about the cybersecurity industry, what would it be? Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, I would guess, you know, for the customer's sake, the complexity, it's just very complex. It, it's such a fast moving landscape. Um, you know, somebody who's in it is challenging enough to keep up with everything, but I, I can't imagine a customer who's, that's not what they do for a living. Um, they have a day job they have to worry about and they have to keep up with everything in cyber. I think the complexity is very challenging. I'd love to, to make that easier. Who is uh, someone or, you know, a few people, if, if you can't narrow it down, uh, that comes to mind that you really admire in the cybersecurity industry? Um, well, I think, uh, I had some real luxuries to, to work with some amazing people over the years. I think, uh, one of the people, uh, I got to work with was a technical fellow at Microsoft named Butler Lampson. Um, he is a genius at a level I'll never be able to understand. Uh, if you're in cyber, you're, you may be familiar with what's called the orange book. It was literally the first book ever written about cybersecurity, uh, digital wrote it and, and he's one of the authors. So he, he literally wrote the book on cybersecurity. And so, uh, he was, uh, you know, just an amazing person, uh, to, to learn from and, and, and work with. And, you know, it's really numerous across the, the, the way I, uh, my, uh, you know, former CTO colleague, Joe Levy was one of the smartest security people I've ever met. And, you know, I thought I was pretty smart. And whenever I got in a room with him, I felt <laughs> dumb as a rock. And so I learned a lot from him, but just along the way, many of the people that I work with Arctic Wolf today, uh, some people I brought with me from prior roles and, and many of the people there today, I I've learned a ton from already. And so I'm just constantly learning. So it's hard to pick, you know, a handful of people that, that really molded my mind because I'm, you know, it's constantly being molded. Yeah. What is, uh, where's the name Arctic Wolf come from? I feel like most startups or security vendors I talk to have just random made up words. So it's interesting seeing one with two actual words. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the company uh, is headquartered in, in Minnesota. Um, and then it was also founded in Waterloo, Canada. So those two locations, um, cool. Minnesota's kind of known for their wolves, uh, more timber wolves, but um, it just, uh, it became a, a name that our founders came up with that stuck. It was unique. And, and I think it's, it, it was uh, fortuitous that it symbolizes our culture and, and who we are. And uh, I think it's, uh, it was one of those names that uh, some people may scratch their head and wonder what it means, but it means an awful lot to us. Cool. And last question. Uh, if you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20 year old self, what advice would you give him? Oh man. Uh, buy Apple stock probably. Um, <laughs> no, I, I would say, um, you know, I, I think there's been times in my life where I probably didn't balance work and life enough, um, particularly early in my career. Uh, I remember um, my wife would tell me my my youngest daughter, my daughter, she was my oldest daughter now, she's a doctorate in, in AI, but um, at the time she would wave at airplanes that she saw and, and say, hi, daddy, because uh, I, I traveled so much for work and, and uh, wasn't home as, as much. And I think as much as I love working uh, and I love what I do um, now that 
you know, my kids are grown and gone, you, you can't get those, those days back. And so, um, cherish your, your personal life as much as you cherish your career, um, because your career, you know, you can have your career last as long as you want, you know, when your, your kids are grown and gone, they're gone. And, uh, you know, obviously you stay in touch with them. You see them, the daughter I raised lives here in Orlando with me. So I see her a lot, but still, you know, it's, it's just a different world. And I think probably early in my career, I was so focused on advancing my career. I, I miss some of those important aspects of my life. So I, I would, I would yeah. tell myself, don't take those things for granted. Love it. Well, Dan, this was a, a, a really good conversation. I appreciate the, uh, the time today and enjoyed having the chance to meet you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 